Chapter 5 The Lucky Turnstile The bottles of red were $500 each, and yet they kept arriving at the table, one after another. The traders at the Tokyo restaurant on this evening in September 2006 could afford the wine without any difficulty, but it struck Tom Hayes as a gratuitous waste of money. To be honest, he told a friend the next day, it felt a bit obscene. He didn't even like the taste of the expensive stuff, but someone, Hayes couldn't remember who, although he suspected it was a particularly over-the-top trader from the French bank BNP Paribas, had felt the need to up the ante. Excess was everywhere in the heady days before the financial crisis. Similar to UBS, BNP had started out back in 1848 as a run-of-the-mill French lender, but by now it had become a continent-leaping colossus, dabbling in everything from retail banking in Hawaii to lending money to Greek shipping magnates to trading derivatives in Tokyo. Befitting the bank's grandeur, in 2000, its top executives set up shop in a converted Parisian mansion that had been the venue for Napoleon Bonaparte's wedding in 1796. The boom, as well as this boozy evening, would end more squalidly. Hayes had been in Tokyo a rough couple of months. There was, of course, the lingering ugliness surrounding his trading in his final weeks at the Royal Bank of Canada but it seemed like nearly everything else had been a mess, too. After he had spent a few days working in UBS's office, the Human Resources Department got around to collecting his documentation and realized he didn't have a work visa, only a tourist one. It therefore was illegal for him to be working in Japan. Hayes was ordered by a distressed HR officer to immediately leave for Seoul, South Korea, and to stay there until his Japanese visa came through. The mix-up didn't inspire much confidence in UBS. When Hayes returned to Tokyo a couple of weeks later, he was lonely. In a leap of faith, Ainsworth had followed him to Japan. She didn't have a job lined up, but given her expertise in derivatives, she figured she could find a gig at one of the Western banks with big Tokyo offices. First, though, she wanted to get to know Tokyo. Before long, she was staying out till 5.30 in the morning doing karaoke with her new friends. If he was honest about it, Hayes wasn't thrilled to have Ainsworth around. Their always volatile relationship had soured, and he had come to resent her. After a month or two, Ainsworth landed a job at French bank Credit Agricole, so she wasn't going back to England anytime soon. Lacking any circumstantial excuses, his only way to end things would be to break it off himself. But every time he started working up the nerve to have the talk with her, he was racked with guilt. He couldn't bring himself to abandon her, especially right after she'd moved nearly 6,000 miles to be with him. And so they stuck together. Aside from Ainsworth, Hayes didn't have friends in Tokyo. He didn't speak the language. He didn't like the food. He preferred to just head home after work. Any excuse not to go out is my mantra, he told the colleague at the time. He met one broker named Nigel Delmar, who showed him around and helped him find an Ikea and a Western-style burger joint, but that was the extent of his social life. 
trying to ease his homesickness, he stocked his kitchen with ground meat, herbs and spices, and a Japanese grain byproduct, and made his own sausages. He installed a device that allowed him to pipe British and American television shows into his apartment. Now he could watch familiar TV programs while eating his sausages along with baked beans and french fries, a classic, if unhealthy, British meal. More assistance soon came from his R.P. Martin broker, Terry Farr, who flew to Tokyo in September. Farr had asked Hayes what he could bring him from England, and the homesick trader had requested cans of Heinz ravioli and a couple of issues of a soccer magazine called 442. Pal that he was, when Farr got off the plane in Tokyo, his suitcase was bulging with canisters of pre-made beef ravioli. Not to be outdone by a competitor, ICAP's Daryl Reed soon paid Hayes a visit. What could he bring? Hayes requested a supply of black garbage bags. They only seemed to sell transparent ones in Tokyo. There was something about black garbage bags that appealed to Hayes. Maybe the fact that he didn't like his trash on display for everyone to see. In any case, Reed did as requested. Footnote. Following Reed's delivery, Japanese trash collectors sent Hayes a letter telling him he had to stop using the black bags. It was against the rules. Hayes grudgingly complied. End footnote. At least money wasn't a problem. Hayes's compensation that year amounted to more than $600,000. And UBS paid for his housing expenses. No minor perk in Tokyo's hyper-expensive real estate market. That left plenty of money for Hayes's limited extracurricular activities. At his desk on the cavernous fifth floor of UBS's Tokyo skyscraper, with teams of traders clustered together in a cacophony of shouting, Hayes generally dressed in jeans or wrinkled black slacks and a polo shirt, or, in the winter, a thin sweater. His clothes were old and worn, except those that had been given to him as gifts. His brokers loved presenting him with polo shirts embroidered with their corporate logos. Tullet Prebon had started the trend, but ICAP couldn't bear the thought of its prized client wearing a rival's clothing, and so raised the stakes with ICAP-branded polo shirts with Hayes's name stitched on the back. He didn't always shower and knew he looked like a tramp. When he was stressed, which was often, he vigorously scratched his head, sending dandruff flakes fluttering onto his shoulders and desktop and generating an endless series of snow-related jokes from colleagues. Though self-conscious about his appearance, he didn't do anything to improve it. Instead, to the best of his ability, he avoided being seen. Many UBS traders used a video conferencing system called Avistar to communicate with each other. It was faster than writing emails or even typing into the real-time electronic chat programs that were a preferred mode of communicating for traders and brokers. And calls on the system weren't recorded, unlike the bank's normal phone system. Without a paper trail, you could say whatever you wanted without fear of repercussions. But Hayes refused to use Avastar, the combination of his slovenly appearance and his long-standing aversion to eye contact made him hate it. As a result, most of his communication, in writing and over the phone, would be preserved for posterity.
Hayes's first task was to build the pricing and risk systems that he would use for his trading, the same kinds of models that he designed at RBC, preferably without the errors. Once again, he used Microsoft Excel spreadsheets to craft the programs. The resulting files were massive, consuming hundreds of megabytes of disk space, and they could instantly process ridiculously detailed calculations about the interrelationships between hundreds of variables. Punch a proposed trade into one cell, and another cell would automatically spit out a price at which it would be profitable for UBS to do the trade. Hayes lovingly regarded his intricate models as similar to living organisms in their complexity. Hayes reported to Mike Pieri, a sharp, sociable manager who'd made his name at UBS as a successful trader. Immediately after graduating from small, beachfront Bond University on Australia's Gold Coast, Pieri had started working at a company that would later be merged into the Swiss bank. He hadn't intended to make a lifelong profession out of banking, figuring it would just be a way station on the path to one day running his own small business. But like many people who reckon they would muck around in finance for a few years, just long enough to pay off student loans, and perhaps amass a small nest egg, it didn't work out that way. Fourteen years later, after stints in Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, Pieri was still at UBS. Along the way, he had married a tall, blonde former flight attendant named Donna, whom he had met years earlier at an Australian soccer tournament. In addition to doing some trading himself, Pieri now was responsible for 27 traders and salesmen. Among them was a young trader named Mirhat Alikulov, who had arrived at UBS as a temporary worker before being admitted to its trader training program in April 2006, shortly before Hayes moved to Tokyo. Alikulov had grown up on a chicken farm in Kazakhstan. A promising student, he was admitted into a high school exchange program that sent him to the Pennsylvania village of Quakertown, where he joined the high school wrestling squad and picked up something resembling an American accent. Back in Kazakhstan, he won a coveted scholarship to go to college in Tokyo, where he learned Japanese and was a member of a championship English-language debate team. From there, he ended up on UBS's trading floor. Pieri had grabbed him for his interest rates team as part of the effort to expand after the Bank of Japan hiked rates earlier in the year. Now, Alikulov was seated near Hayes, who, with the title of director, was two rungs above him. Almost immediately upon his arrival at UBS, Alikulov, with his unusual name and hard-to-place Eurasian looks, was bestowed with a series of nicknames. One was Durka Durka, which derived from a common refrain in the deliberately offensive 2004 movie Team America World Police. The film was wildly popular among traders and brokers who reveled in their political incorrectness. The Team America puppets depicting Middle Eastern terrorists used the phrase Durka Durka Muhammad Jihad instead of speaking actual Arabic. Alikulov wasn't an Arab and Kazakhstan isn't in the Middle East. No matter. Ha-ha, <laughs> that's great, Pieri said when he learned of his subordinate's nickname. Alikulov looked up to Hayes, 
who was a few years older and enjoyed a reputation as a superstar in the making. Plus, Hayes never called him Durka Durka. The following summer, Hayes would become the Kazakh's supervisor, a relationship that would yield life-changing results for both men. In the meantime, Hayes thought the junior trader, with black hair and a short, slightly pudgy build, was unremarkable. Women, however, found him quite appealing, resulting in a succession of attractive, pouty-lipped Japanese girlfriends. Hayes' first day of trading was September 29, 2006. He was tasked as a market maker responsible for handling derivatives linked to Japanese interest rates. In other words, helping UBS customers fulfill their buy and sell orders by building up an inventory of the products and then managing the associated risks via hedging against unfavorable swings in rates. But, as always, wagering the bank's money on the future directions of interest rates was at least as important. The rapidly expanding universe of swaps, futures, and other derivatives flooding the market allowed financial whizzes like Hayes to make massive wagers on the directions of rates in different currencies and over different time periods. It wasn't as simple as predicting the Bank of Japan would hike interest rates at some point in the future. Instead, Hayes organized his bets around derivatives that would deliver profits if, at a specific date, the difference between two interest rates, say those in the United States and those in Japan, narrowed or widened by very precise margins. Hayes might wager that U.S. dollar LIBOR might fall relative to yen LIBOR. Other classes of trades tried to profit from predicting the convergence or divergence between different time periods of yen LIBOR, say, whether one-month LIBOR would rise relative to three-month LIBOR, or, even more complicated, whether the difference between one-month and six-month LIBOR would be greater three months or six months in the future. Hayes loved the challenge. It was like trying to complete a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle whose pieces constantly change shape. The nature of the instruments Hayes was trading meant that his fate was chained to LIBOR. But it wasn't the only benchmark that mattered. By then, LIBOR's success and the BBA's marketing efforts had inspired even more local variants all over the world. In Brussels, there was Eurobor, tied to the euro. Hong Kong had Hybor. Singapore had Cybor. Hungary had Bubor. And South Africa had Jaibar, to name just a few. Each rate was determined by an association of banks, both homegrown ones and those with substantial local presences. These were all separate from LIBOR and the BBA and generally were run by the local banking associations in those countries. The Japanese Bankers Association administered TIBOR, the Tokyo Interbank Offered Rate, which was an ingredient in many of the derivatives that Hayes and his counterparts were buying and selling. Whereas yen LIBOR was supposed to measure what banks would pay to borrow Japanese currency from each other in London, TIBOR measured borrowing rates in Tokyo. The bigger difference was that yen LIBOR and TIBOR were based on different groups of banks providing data, and they therefore didn't move in lockstep. 
Tibor became one more roulette table for traders. Hayes started out his UBS trading conservatively. Always prone to anxiety, he had been scarred by the RBC episode. He felt such acute pressure, such paranoia, that he would get nauseous as he squeezed onto Tokyo's crowded subways each morning. He didn't sleep well, waking up multiple times each night to check movements in the U.S. markets. At the end of each day, when he had to assess the profitability of his trades and assign values to the assets he was still holding, he erred on the side of making them seem less profitable than they actually were. These were just estimates, so Hayes had some wiggle room as he valued the positions. Each evening, Pieri eyeballed Hayes's summation of that day's profits and losses. But no one looked at Hayes's individual trades. He was struck by the laissez-faire attitude. UBS clearly trusted him to do the right thing. Hayes's team was on a floor that also included specialists in trading currencies, commodities, and bonds. The entire group would go out for beer and bowling nights three or four times a year at the Tokyo Dome Bowling Center, next door to the indoor stadium where the Yomi Uri Giants baseball team played. These were among the few work events that Hayes genuinely enjoyed. He grudgingly went along to other such gatherings, but without much enthusiasm or effort. Once, at a dinner some colleagues had organized, he showed up lugging a thick economics textbook, which he spent the meal reading. With as many as 12 computer screens and two keyboards, Hayes's workstation looked like something out of a sci-fi film. He had several monitors tracking different relationships between different market indices. Numbers whizzed up and down the screen as trades elsewhere in the market were reported. Charts moved. Color-coded, interactive Excel spreadsheets were open in the background. And then there were normal web browser windows and a couple of screens running chat programs and email. Two humming computer terminals, and sometimes a third as well, powered the whole setup. With one machine devoted to making his Excel models run lightning fast, his personal intercom system barked with a constant flow of data from brokers and colleagues. The monitors cast a glow on Hayes's scruffy face as he stooped over his desk, shoulders tense and hunched as he glared at his screens. He reminded a colleague of the Neo character in the Matrix trilogy. He could just see these numbers. The corner of the trading room in which Hayes, Pieri, and Alikulov sat was laid out in a deliberate fashion. The guys responsible for submitting the bank's daily Tibor data to the Japanese Bankers Association were seated next to the traders, like Hayes, who were making wagers that depended largely on the movements of Tibor and Libor. In some cases, the Tibor submitters themselves were making those trades. It wasn't hard to guess the result. Long before Hayes arrived in Tokyo, the submitters and the traders had realized they could help each other out. It had been common practice at UBS for traders to ask their deskmates to nudge Tibor in helpful directions and to ring colleagues in other parts of the UBS empire for help moving LIBOR. Those colleagues didn't have to comply. They could have reported something resembling the bank's actual borrowing costs, 
But who wanted to be the martyr, the goody two-shoes, who interfered with traders raking in profits for the bank? In addition to watching his colleagues interact, Hayes had an unobstructed view of UBS's trading positions and how they intersected with its LIBOR submissions. Always adept at spotting patterns, he quickly realized that the bank was moving its submissions in ways that benefited its trading positions. That didn't seem like a coincidence. In fact, Hayes had noticed the phenomenon back when he was at the Royal Bank of Canada. At one point, he'd asked an RBC manager about UBS's seemingly odd submissions, which happened to be hurting Hayes's own trades. His manager bluntly told him it was because of the Swiss bank's trading positions. Hayes wasn't the only one who noticed. Eighteen months before he joined UBS, a client had complained to the bank about its self-serving LIBOR submissions. It's our natural right, the UBS employee shot back. Any other bank will do the same. One afternoon that September, Hayes was chatting electronically with a Tokyo broker named David Perfect. After disappearing for a couple of hours, Hayes returned and explained that he'd just been on an expedition to procure a Japanese cell phone and contract. It had turned into an adventure. Unable to understand what the guy at the phone store was saying, he'd ended up just randomly selecting a phone plan. Not sure what I've signed up to, Hayes reported. The broker sympathized. Communicating with the Japanese, even those who spoke English, could be mind-boggling. Perfect offered advice on how Hayes could save money on his international phone calls. Then their conversation turned to work. Hayes, in the process of building his Excel models, grumbled that he was having trouble figuring out the trajectory of interest rates. It's very, very hard to price stuff with the fixes, trader shorthand for benchmarks like LIBOR, being so manipulated and inconsistent, he complained. The fixes are manipulated? Perfect deadpanned. Yes, of course they are, Hayes said, not picking up the sarcasm. Kidding, Perfect clarified. Just give the cash desk, the guys responsible for the bank's LIBOR submissions, a Mars bar, and they'll set whatever you want, Hayes went on, still oblivious. They are usually staffed by fat people. He was kidding, kind of. For more than a decade, traders and brokers had used the punchline of giving the cash desk a Mars bar as shorthand for the well-established pattern of derivatives traders pleading for favorable LIBOR submissions. And so, on his first day of trading, as Hayes chatted with Terry Farr, he threw in a casual aside, Do me a favor today and get LIBORs right up. I'll do what I can, Farr responded. Footnotes. Hayes would later claim that he didn't view it as a genuine request, so much as an articulation of his desire to see LIBOR inch higher. End footnote. Many of Hayes's contacts with brokerage firms, guys like Reed and Farr, remained in London. Depending on the time of year and whether daylight savings was in effect, Tokyo was either eight or nine hours ahead of the British capital. As a result, it wasn't until Tokyo's evening trading session that most of the London brokers arrived at their offices. 
unless, that is, the brokers radically adjusted their schedules to suit their clients' needs. Because his primary clients were focused on the Tokyo markets, Reed tended to arrive at ICAP's London offices around 3 a.m. and then work a 12-hour day before beating the rush-hour commute home. That was far from ideal. Most nights, he got less, sometimes much less, than five hours of sleep. But it soon grew worse. With Hayes now in Tokyo, Reed started arriving in ICAP's darkened offices shortly before midnight. He would switch on the lights and then spend the next five or six hours in isolation, the only one on the vast brokerage floor, until some of his early bird colleagues started trickling in. Most days, he stuck around till noon, ensuring that he overlapped for at least a few hours with all his colleagues before trudging home and grabbing a nap before his sons returned from school around 4 p.m. It wasn't a recipe for a happy family. Joanna, who had given up her career as a court clerk to look after the kids, was feeling more and more like a single parent. One morning in October 2006, Reed was alone in the office when he heard from Hayes. Outside, the London sky was still dark, and a thick mist hung in the air. Hayes had continued his bizarre and reckless practice of spilling his guts about whatever he was trading. To brokers, the information was like gold. They cannily shared it with grateful clients, and the smarter, more entrepreneurial brokers, men like Reed, were able to anticipate related transactions that might appeal to traders and then pitch them as opportunities that had suddenly popped up in the market. Now Hayes confessed to Reed that after trading for less than a month at UBS, he was already encountering trouble. What he would do for the six-month version of Yen LIBOR to go down slightly. Otherwise, he stood to lose a bundle of money. Normally, someone in Hayes' shoes might have just asked UBS's own LIBOR submitters for help. In his previous jobs, it had been second nature for him to talk to the guys on the cash desk. Hayes had sat near them, and they were a valuable source of market intelligence. The problem was that at UBS, the LIBOR submitters were based in cities all over the world, Zurich, London, Singapore, but not Tokyo. Only the Tibor submitters were stationed in Tokyo. As a newbie, Hayes had no one to turn to. Except for Reed. Hayes knew that he and his ICAP colleagues were plugged in when it came to LIBOR. In fact, Reed at times had noted to Hayes that he had an acquaintance at a German bank, West LB, someone he'd known back in school, who now was involved in that bank's LIBOR submissions. Now Reed had an idea. It involved his ICAP colleague, Colin Goodman. After quitting school at age 18, Goodman had started in finance as a bank clerk back when Hayes was a toddler. Bored, he saw a newspaper ad for an entry-level brokerage job at a company that later would become part of ICAP. His application was successful, and he started in 1984 as a trainee. From fetching sandwiches and making coffee, he climbed, very slowly, through the ranks. By the time Reed first interviewed for his ICAP job a few years later, Goodman had sat in on the meeting. By now, 
working in ICAP's Yen Derivatives team, he was a veteran. Goodman, who had a long, narrow face, a chin so weak it was nearly invisible, and thick brown hair that he carefully parted on his left, was renowned for his drinking. So well known was his penchant for downing a bottle of Australian Shiraz over a long weekday lunch that a colleague christened him Lord Luncheon. Despite his imbibing, Goodman was an early riser. At 5.25 a.m. every day, he caught the first British rail train going from the suburbs into London's bustling Waterloo Station. From there, he hopped on the tube to get to ICAP's offices by 6.30 a.m. His first task was to check in with traders and brokers in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore to get a feel for where transactions were taking place in the market and at what prices. That knowledge was key to his ability to tell other clients about where markets had been and where they were likely heading. Around 7 a.m., he sent out an email called a run-through to a slew of bank traders. The dispatch contained a simple spreadsheet, basically just a box of numbers, pasted into the body of the message. It listed where every tenor, the technical term for time period, of Yen Libor had stood the past day or two and where Goodman expected it to end up that day. Footnote. Those tenors ranged from overnight, in other words, the rate at which a bank thought it could borrow money for less than a day, to one year. Intervals included one week, one month, two months, three months, and six months. End footnote. He called that last figure suggested LIBORs. Each morning, he prefaced the data with the same simple note. Good morning, Yen Run-Through. The run-throughs had been an ICAP fixture since the late 1990s. Before long, ICAP's marketing team had sensed their commercial potential. Every so often, an executive traipsed around to a bunch of banks and touted the run-throughs as a valuable service ICAP provided important clients. And so the number of recipients on Goodman's run-through list grew. LIBOR submitters received it, derivatives traders received it, even Bank of England officials received it. Reed and Goodman had realized something interesting about the mundane run-throughs. Employees at some banks, including Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Royal Bank of Scotland, West LB, and Lloyd's in Great Britain, who were in charge of submitting LIBOR data, sometimes appeared to simply copy ICAP's data, rather than go through the onerous process of coming up with their own hypothetical estimates of what it would cost to borrow across different currencies and time periods. Relying on the run-throughs represented an enticing shortcut. And because of the inherent subjectivity of the LIBOR estimates, nobody was likely to notice. But Reed and Goodman did notice. So, apparently, did Reed's manager, Danny Wilkinson, who informed his bosses in 2006 that banks are becoming dependent on ICAP for LIBOR calls. Once, when Goodman's run-through contained a typo, suggesting six-month LIBOR at 1.10 instead of 1.01, Reed noticed that Citigroup and West LB copied it, even though it represented a huge leap from the previous day's level. When Goodman corrected it the next day, the banks again followed suit. In other words, 
the laziness of a few bank employees, sheep, as Reed sometimes called them, meant that ICAP's run-throughs had a startling amount of real power. If Goodman's email contained slightly inflated LIBOR estimates, for example, there was a good chance a few banks would also submit higher data. That would nudge the overall benchmark higher. To traders like Hayes, even a shift of 0.01 percentage points, or one basis point in the lingo, could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. For anyone with a contract whose interest rates or payouts were linked to LIBOR, significant money was on the line. So Reed told Hayes that October morning that he might be able to help. Footnote. Reed would later deny that it was his idea. End footnote. He didn't mention the exact plan, only saying that his colleague Goodman would do what he could to spread the word that LIBOR seemed to be heading lower. That sounded great to Hayes, who mentioned the idea to his boss, Pieri. That's good news, Pieri affirmed. Footnote. Pieri would later say that he thought such arrangements were standard industry practice. End footnote. Still, Hayes was a bit surprised when ICAP actually seemed to succeed in altering banks' LIBOR submissions. A pattern soon emerged. Reed would take a request from Hayes based on his trading positions, then relay it to Goodman via email. Often the messages had subject lines like, LIBORs! One of the enduring mysteries of the British finance lexicon is its tendency to pluralize random proper names. Goldman becomes Goldman's, Lehman becomes Lehman's, LIBOR becomes LIBOR's. Reed told Goodman that he'd get lunch in exchange for his efforts. Reed had lost his credit card during a recent drunken night out bowling. Once he retrieved it, he promised he would be supplying you with copious amounts of curry as a thank you, Indian food being the preferred takeout option among London's traders and brokers. After fielding three days of similar requests and still not having received his promised curry, Goodman raised the stakes. How about taking him to K10, a popular Japanese restaurant, for a nice lunch, presumably one with wine? Or, Goodman joked, cash would be preferable. Sometimes Goodman seemed to comply with Reed's requests. Other times, apparently feeling that they were too far outside the realm of reality, he balked. Reed marveled to colleagues about the strategy's success. Tom needed them high, so our boys sent them out high, and it seems people copied them, he boasted. Roger Darren was a 34-year-old trader in UBS's Singapore office. A Swiss native and a fan of Italian opera, in particular the tenor Luciano Pavarotti, Darren had a reputation in the industry for being aggressive and at times nasty, hardly an unusual personality type on a bank trading floor. Bald and bearded, he suffered from a disorder that had left half of his face looking slack, one of his eyes lazy. Despite the defect, he still cycled through a number of girlfriends among his UBS colleagues. One of Darren's duties in Singapore was to handle the daily submissions of the bank's yen LIBOR data. It was a dull part of his job, but because Darren was himself a trader who specialized in interest rate derivatives, it imbued him with a certain power. 
and it would make him indispensable to Hayes. Hayes, at first, didn't know who was in charge of UBS's Yen LIBOR submissions. Neither did Pieri, who suggested that Hayes get in touch with Darren to see if he knew. Hi, Roger. Who sets our LIBORs? Hayes asked, eschewing any social niceties, one day in November 2006. Me, Darren replied. Well, that was easy. Hayes asked if Darren could do him a favor and lift UBS's Yen LIBOR submission as high as possible that day. No problem, Darren responded. We'll get it an extra notch today. He hiked UBS's submission to 0.6 from 0.55 the day before. A big five basis point boost. That helped push the overall Yen LIBOR average up sharply to 0.57938 from 0.545. Traders like Hayes calculated their potential profits based on LIBOR swinging by a basis point or even less. This was a move of more than three basis points. Two days later, Hayes again asked Darren to push LIBOR higher. This time, Darren said he couldn't help. He told Hayes he had his own trades that would benefit from LIBOR declining. Hayes proposed a solution. He would buy Darren's trading positions so that increasing LIBOR would be profitable, or at least not detrimental, for both of them. Darren's positions were small enough that Hayes could afford to purchase them without sacrificing the profits he stood to collect if LIBOR rose. Darren agreed. The following day, Hayes suggested a repeat. We can try to do what we did yesterday, which worked out well for both of us. It did work indeed. Darren agreed. Over the next two years, Hayes, or Alikolov, who had eagerly accepted a job as Hayes' deputy, hoping some of his brilliance would rub off on him, would ping Darren on hundreds of occasions, asking him to move UBS's LIBOR data in helpful ways. Darren often complied. Neither he nor Alikolov thought much of the requests partly because it was so clearly common practice on the bank's trading floors. Darren knew that his colleagues in other parts of the world routinely took into account their colleagues' trading positions when deciding where to place their LIBOR submissions. Plus, Darren had received the same marching orders as Andrew Smith had. Holga Ziga had instructed them to cooperate as much as possible with their fellow traders. Darren, like Smith, interpreted this as meaning that they were generally supposed to play ball when it came to LIBOR-nudging requests. That's not to say that Darren always acceded to Hayes' entreaties. On occasion, he rejected them as outlandish. I don't mind helping on your fixings, but I'm not setting LIBOR 7 basis points, 0.07 percentage points, away from the truth, Darren responded on one occasion in early 2007. I'll get UBS banned if I do that. No interest in that. Okay, obviously no interest in that happening either, Hayes agreed, not asking for it to be seven basis points from reality. The exchange reflected an important dynamic. There were limits to the extent that traders would tinker with LIBOR. You could move LIBOR within a certain plausible band to help yourself, but straying outside that range was at best unwise. Did that principle stem from a sense of propriety, 
a notion that while the definition of LIBOR was a bit amorphous, the submissions needed to have at least some integrity? Or was it simply that traders wanted to avoid detection as they rigged a vital interest rate? Years later, that question would be hotly contested. In any case, the constructive relationship between Hayes and Darren was doomed. Even before that first friendly trade, Pierre had informed Darren that he and Hayes planned to start making markets in a product called overnight index swaps. These were another flavor of interest rate derivatives, the rare one that wasn't linked to LIBOR. Until then, those swaps had been Darren's turf, but Hayes's move to grab this area had received the blessings of UBS executives who wanted to take advantage of their new hotshot trader in Tokyo. Obviously, it was not well received, Pieri told a colleague. Darren's crew believe they own the product. Before long, a bitter Darren would start trashing Hayes to anyone who would listen. Every day when Hayes arrived at UBS's building in Tokyo, he was greeted with several sets of turnstiles. He had to choose which one to walk through. Most people wouldn't give the choice any thought. To Hayes, the decision and its effect on his daily routine were of great consequence. One morning in early 2007, he entered through the right turnstile on the cluster of turnstiles farthest to the right. That day, his trades were like gold. He made money everywhere he looked. Superstitious by nature, Hayes decided that his choice of turnstile must have had something to do with his great day. The lucky turnstile chose me, he would say. From that day on, he used the same gate every single time he entered the building. It wasn't just the turnstile. Hayes also had a lucky pair of black Hugo Boss pants and a preferred pair of yellow Ralph Lauren Bumblebee socks given to him by a Hong Kong broker named Danny Brand. He wore the trousers so often that holes started to appear in the crotch area. Hayes's life revolved around his job. He typically arrived at work around 8 a.m. and stayed till at least 7 p.m. He came in when he was sick. He rarely ate lunch. An assistant fetched him afternoon tea. He only grudgingly went to the bathroom during trading hours. By evening, he was exhausted but didn't want to go home. Instead, he often sat at his computer playing Pac-Man. When his father visited, Nick overheard his son on the phone at odd hours chattering about LIBOR. The term was familiar to Nick, who by now had reinvented himself as a day trader, but he didn't grasp the extent to which his son's job hinged on interest rate determinations. When Nick tried to start a conversation about the Queens Park Rangers, Hayes wouldn't engage, preferring instead to remain glued to his Blackberry. Nick found his son's stoniness, his lack of animation, unsettling. Though Hayes was obsessed, he was hardly miserable. For the first time in his life, he was popular with women. The fact that he was a well-paid rising star probably didn't hurt. But he also felt more relaxed talking to Japanese women, those who spoke English, that is, than he did Western ones because he didn't find the former to be physically attractive. Japanese women took an immediate liking to him, apparently because he seemed non-predatory and sweet 
compared to some of his peers. Footnote. While most adults in Japan get a son attached to their names, Hayes was known as Tom Chan, a suffix usually reserved for children. End footnote. One woman at UBS found his quirky personality adorable and bought him a pair of panda dolls. Propped up on his desk, they became his lucky pandas. Panda influenced or not, Hayes's good fortune continued. Hitting his stride, he often earned millions of dollars a week for UBS, establishing a reputation as one of Tokyo's elite traders. This success had little to do with his nascent LIBOR massaging efforts. He was just making smart wagers. To Hayes's surprise, some of his higher ups started pushing him to step on the gas. It was part of UBS's spectacularly ill timed strategy to get bigger in risky markets on the eve of a once in a century financial crisis. One of those bosses was a London based executive named Sasha Prince. Prince had a reputation inside UBS for being loud and combative. Known for sometimes ripping people to shreds when he was unhappy with them. Constantly chugging cans of Red Bull, he was an avid risk taker. Some colleagues regarded him as a reckless cowboy. On one visit to Tokyo, Prince asked Hayes how much risk he had on. In other words, the total amount he stood to gain or lose, depending on the outcome of all his bets. Hayes told him the dollar figure. It was a large number. But without missing a beat or seeming to think it through very carefully, Prince told him to double it. Christ, Sasha, you're mental, Hayes thought to himself. It's a big risk already. But far be it from him to defy an order. He happily doubled down. Adding to his growing confidence, Hayes came to realize that he didn't need to rely solely on Darren and the ICAP brokers for help with LIBOR. Thanks to his time in London's tight knit community of derivatives traders, Hayes had a few contacts at companies other than UBS. And it soon occurred to him that they could help him get his way. The traders whom Hayes knew at other banks were an unremarkable bunch. Sure, the group was studded with the occasional party animal, but it was not a standout crowd. These were the proletariats of banking. Young infantry toiling away for the benefits of their institutions and, in many cases, their institutions' lavishly paid senior executives. Hayes's cohort was hardly poor. He and his peers were pulling in mid six figure salaries and bonuses, but by investment banking standards, they weren't worth a second glance. For the most part, they weren't even making creative or otherwise exceptional trades. They were simply marching along a well trodden path, except for one important wrinkle. Without fully realizing it, they were entering into a partnership that would, a few years hence, be construed as a criminal enterprise that embodied greed, recklessness, and hubris. In essence, everything that made Wall Street evil. At the time, it seemed like business as usual.